In this year, 2019, we're at the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. We're delighted to be able to welcome Anna Funda to Mulaney. I confess I have been pursuing her to come and do an event with us for some years. <laughs> Before turning to writing in the late 1990s, Anna worked as an international lawyer for the Australian government, focusing on human rights, constitutional law, and treaty, treaty ne negotiation. But sometime in the early 90s, she took off to Berlin to become what she describes as a kind of agony aunt at a Berlin television station. And it was from there that she came to write Stasiland, eventually published in 2002, and going on to be shortlisted for many awards in Australia and Britain, including winning the world's biggest prize for nonfiction, the Samuel Johnson Prize. Held as a masterpiece and a classic, Stasiland has been published in 25 countries and translated into 16 languages, adapted for radio and audiobook in the UK and Australia. In 2011, Anna published the novel All That I Am, based on real people and events. The novel's an exhilarating exploration of bravery and betrayal, of the risks and sacrifices some people make for their beliefs, and of heroism hidden in the most unexpected places. All That I Am went on to many, win many awards as well, including the Miles Franklin, the Barbara Jeffress, the Indie Best Debut Fiction, the Indie Book of the Year 2012, the ABIA Best Literary Fiction, the ABIA Book of the Year, and the Nielsen Book Data Booksellers Choice Award, just to embarrass her, you know, we'll just list this off. So Anna holds a, a, a BA honors, an LLB honors, an MA, and a doctorate in the creative arts, and she speaks fluent French and German. While she grew up in Melbourne and Paris, she now lives in Sydney with her husband and three children. Please welcome Anna Funda to Milano. I'd really like to ask you, talk about Stasiland in particular for a while, if that's possible. Uh, and I'm very curious to, as to why or how you found yourself in Berlin in the early 90s, um, working, at a, working at a television station. I mean, you'd already had a very promising career as a lawyer in Australia. <laughs> what, what happened? Um, I did have, a, I mean, I was briefly quite a bad lawyer, I think. I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I did any kind of permanent damage or anything, and I quite liked it. I didn't harm anyone. Um, but it got to the point where I, I was in the, the most interesting and um, exciting job that I could think of, which was in international law, which is what I'd studied. So we were negotiating treaties on behalf of, the, at that time, the Keating government with other countries and interpreting um, our international treaties that we'd already entered into in order to implement them, particularly human rights and environmental treaties. So it was a fantastic, fantastic job. Very lovely colleagues. And I just um, got to the point where I realised that everybody else was really um, working in their offices and corrals, and this was their real life, whereas I was taking notes on what was going on, and I started to feel um, this sort of split between people who were genuinely kind of living their lives and me, and I was being an observer. And I felt, um, I don't know, I was going to say dishonest and like a spy or something. So maybe I went to, I mean, I'm just working this out as I sit here, maybe I went to Germany to find people who were real spies and more dishonest <laughs> than I was. You know, maybe that was my thing. But I had... Um, I had studied as an undergraduate at the Free University of Berlin from 88 to 89. And at that time, Berlin was, as you know, many of you will remember, a, 
a city with a wall around it deep inside the Eastern Bloc. Um, and just by accident, I had met um, some people who were almost a generation older than me, artists um, and writers from East Germany who had been kicked out of East Germany and they were living in West Berlin. So East Germany was the only Eastern Bloc country that had the option not only of um, incarcerating people or in the early days liquidating them, as they so poetically say, but just throwing them over the wall into West Germany or West Berlin. So these people who I knew who were fantastically interesting and um, lovely, uh, we would be in a cafe in West Berlin at the end of the street, like in Kreuzberg, some of you will know this, the, there would be the wall. And over that wall in 88, um, 87 to 88, were these um, people's ex partners and their children and their past careers and their lives, literally a couple of hundred metres away, and they couldn't get to them. And I think for me, that was a, just a hugely interesting place to be physically and psychologically. So what kind of political system um, can exist on the planet which divides people in that way? and which cuts through lives in that way. And what kind of place is a country like East Germany that will kick out its best and brightest whilst proclaiming itself to be a more just or less unjust place than the capitalist West? So for me, that was like, uh, you know, I was 20. It was a kind of perfect storm of the personal and the political and the geopolitical. And I think for someone who grew up... Uh, when the world was sort of teetered on a kind of nuclear Armageddon, that was the sort of personal epicentre of that, really, a representation of it. So I went back much later in the 90s, in 97, and started writing Stasiland. Mm. But I mean, one of the things that you would say in the book is that you, you were working at this television station and you had this curiosity, because by this time the war was down, you had this curiosity about what had happened in East Germany, but nobody was interested in talking about it. But you were interested, and, and you sort of took it to the television station people and said, can I make some programs about this? And, and they said, no, we're not. No, nobody wants to know this. But you persisted. And in fact, what you did, which I find really extraordinary, is you put an advertisement in the paper um, inviting, um, inviting <laughs> these uh, ex-Stasi people to talk to you. Yes. So I... I, I went back to Berlin in 97. I went back several times. The wall fell at the end of 89, and then I was back there um, doing some study and courses and living and so on. But I really um, then decided to uh, leave the law and become a more honest person in some way and try and do what I wanted to do and cobbled together some money and a little creative writing award and went to live there in 97. So the television job that I had was really, um, was a fantastic job. It was insanely, I mean, I could live on nothing at that time, but it was insanely lucrative. I could do a day of agony aunt um, letter answering um, and live, really, for the, for the rest of the time. Um, but I wanted to write, really what was interesting to me was 
the stories of people who resisted that regime and they were not being told. So the newspapers in the 90s were full of revelations about how East Germany had been run because no one knew. No one knew in the West and even in the East, no one really knew. It was a, a sort of a police state structured like uh, a pyramid of fear, really, which operated on serial betrayal. So in a room like this, for instance, there would be, I don't know, anything from... So really, one in 50 people were informing on their neighbours and friends and colleagues and, you know, school classes and so factory workers and so on. So there'd be any, you know, there might be 20 people in this room or 10 tonight who would go off afterwards and report to their handlers. And then all of that would be cross-referenced and everybody would be talking about who said, who said what. So it was just a shocking regime. But what really interested me were the stories of resistance and the first one I found was exactly as I describe it in Stasiland, was Miriam's story. And after I started finding these, what ended up to be four main stories about resisting that regime, I thought I'd better talk to some ex-Stasi men because I need to understand what it was like from their point of view to work for the firm. And I met a young woman at a party who said to me, oh, that's what you want to do well, you've got absolutely no hope. Um, that will never happen. And I said, why? She said, because I've tried. I wrote, she said, I wanted to do a master's thesis on people who worked for the Stasi, and I wrote 147 letters and leaf-dropped, leafletted them into their apartment blocks in Marzahn, which is a very um, Stasi, I was going to say infested. <laughs> I might leave it at that. Um, area of Berlin, and she said, I got, I got three replies, and they were all really anonymous, and they were really carefully worded reasons why the men would not speak to her. And I thought, I have no patience for that, and I have no expertise in that. I'm not doing a scientific study. I will advertise in the local paper in Potsdam, which was another place where lots of Stasi, ex-Stasi men lived. So I had someone check my German because I wasn't entirely confident about the way you would write an ad in the newspaper. And very nice, and I thought a woman who was quite well-intentioned towards me did check it. But when it came out in the newspaper in Potsdam, my ad was put into the personal columns <laughs> of this newspaper. And so it really read... Australian writer seeks Stasi men. <laughs> uh, view conversation. Uh, and then it said something like discretion guaranteed, which obviously I'm... <laughs> I was in no position to guarantee anything of a kind. So this is 97, it's long before mobile phones, and I was living in a dingy apartment, which I also describe... Um, this is a book I never want my children to read, for instance, because I don't want them um, to think that that's an okay way to live. Uh, you know, it was really bleak, and the plumbing, as I say, had to be learnt. You know, it was really complicated. But I had one telephone, and that phone just rang hot then, because that was, <laughs> that was the only number that I had to leave for these men. And I then had a series of um, assignations, really, with men who ranged from um, kind of 
buoyant and excited to describe, like Herr Christian, the work that he did uh, when he dressed up as, he was a Stasi agent who was checking people as they drove across uh, East Germany from West Germany into West Berlin. And he had to check with mirrors under the cars when they were leaving to see that no East Germans also arriving had snuck themselves into the boot or under the car and so on. And so to do that, he would disguise himself as a blind man, say, which he really enjoyed because he said he got to have a girl on his arm leading him around. Or he decided, or as a Western tourist, because the clothes were much better quality. <laughs> um, and he got to drive a VW Golf or pretend he drove a VW Golf and all these sorts of things. To, uh, you know, another man, Herr Vince, who... Um, who demanded to see my passport when I met him. He demanded to meet me uh, in the square in front of the church in Potsdam, which was completely empty. This is in 1997, so the surveillance regime is long over. He said, you know, I will meet you at 1,500 hours in the square in front of the church. I will have the Märkische Allgemeine rolled up under my left arm, blah, blah. <laughs> and I just, I really did think to myself, I'm giving this very um, kind of officiously creepy man, an opportunity to rehearse the importance that he's well and truly lost. You know, but I did go along with all these scenarios and then, and then put I, them all in the book. Can I interrupt you? Of no, course. Because, no, no, it's just it, this story you're telling has, has a side that you never actually mentioned in the book but seems really glaring to me is that weren't you scared out of your wits? I mean, these were, as you say, they were really creepy men. You got in cars with them. You drove into the dark forest with one of them. You went to other apartments, to these, these places, and sat down with them for hours at a time. I didn't know that you had advertised yourself as having an assignment with them, an, assign <laughs> an assignation with them. So, I mean, but weren't, weren't you scared for your, for your safety? Uh, no, I was never really, except for one man who... Um, I describe this in the book. It's like he was living, his name in the book, they all asked me to change their names, of course. His name in the book is Herr Bock of Golm. Golm, G-O-L-M, is a real place outside Potsdam with hardly any streetlights. <laughs> so it was a very dark place and I was talking to him in his house and he, um, when we finished, he, he was very proud of his house because on the top floor, a bit like a kind of eastern block, Miss, Miss Havisham, if you can imagine this, he had in the top of his house a room um, for covert meetings with um, informers, and he had it still set up as such. Um, I didn't actually go up there. I didn't want to be stuck up there with him. But at the end of talking to him, he turned off all the lights in his house and went into his kitchen and took out a drumstick, I think, out of the fridge and started eating it. And said, I said, I think I'd like to call a cab. So really long before mobile phones, can I use your phone? And he just came to the out of the kitchen gnawing on this bone, really like a, um, a, fairy, a fairy tale, going wrong, gnawing on this bone, saying, I don't think the taxis will come here. <laughs> <laughs> and he drew all the... And I said, I'm going to try. So I called a taxi and gave the address upon which he promptly drew all the curtains so that whatever light there might have been in the house, which was seemed to me very, very dark, wouldn't show up from the street and the taxi would just drive past. Um, 
that was creepy. But really, all the rest of it, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, I mean, I, I was quite lonely, I would say. <laughs> Maybe that's an explanation. But also, I was dealing with men who had worked, um, they had done terrible damage to people, and they were part of uh, an apparatus of evil. But what they had done had all been minutely decided uh, in committees and minuted and decided and then given out to do. So it was um, wicked and it was psychologically destructive um, and ruinous. And the object of it was to break people's spirit, which they did quite successfully. But un it was not like the regime, say, in um, Latin America, where it always seemed to me they were more both red-blooded and bloodthirsty, you know, and people were disemboweled and thrown from helicopters and things like that. Uh, these people were apparatchiks. They were kind of gutless, grey-faced apparatchiks who liked doing awful things but wouldn't really, I didn't think wouldn't take the initiative to do anything to me. Um, and I was right. But I, I stress I really don't want my kids to read this book. So just, just for a moment, taking it aside there, do you want to just describe a little bit about what it was like in East Germany for that 40 years? Because, I mean, you went to the museum, the Stasi, what, what had been the headquarters of the Stasi um, became a museum after the war came down. People could go in there and they could look at their files and, and they could do things. And, and you went there yourself. And, I mean, there was this, just in the very early pages of the book, you go in there and there's this room full of jars that, are, that tend to be the smell jars. I mean, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, about East Germany in that period, just to give people a sense of what, of what we're talking about. Well, I would say at first that I don't think... I mean, I wrote this book... Um, it was first published in 2002 in Australia. And at that time, it seemed like I was describing a regime that was a long time in the past. So, 89 um, seemed quite a long time before. Obviously, it's not that far before. But I have to say now, as more and more we live in an age of... Uh, utter and almost total surveillance um, and the rise of tyrannies and dictatorships, many of them led uh, by fundamentally anti-democratic, um, tyrannical men. The book seems less and less in the past. So um, I've just spent some time trying to tease this out to myself because in Germany they're publishing um, a special... Uh, edition of this book for coming out towards the end of this year. Um, I was going to say, as, as a kind of celebration of 30 years since the fall of the wall. And I've kind of been thinking, I've written a piece that's an afterword to it to sort of update it um, and look at the fates of the people I describe in the book, what's happened to the people who resisted, Miriam and Julia and the rock star Klaus Renft and Frau Paul and in general terms, what's happened to the Stasi afterwards. So East Germany existed from 1949. The war finished in 45, as I'm sure you know, and Germany was divided up and administered by the Allies. Uh, Russia went overnight from being an ally 
to being a foe in the Cold War as the hot war turned cold also overnight. Russia administered the eastern area of East Germany and it was administered then as a communist state. Um, and the western parts of Germany were administered by France, um, the UK and the US. Um, the, wall, the wall didn't go up until 1961 and it went up overnight on the 13th of August because East Germany was um, bleeding, was just hemorrhaging its workforce. Everybody was leaving, particularly the young people, to go and work in the West. Um, and to flee the surveillance that existed there. That surveillance, as I said, ended up being um, much more thorough, if you like, um, than in, in numerical terms than what happened in the Third Reich or than what happened in Russia. So one in seven people on, summit, on the CIA estimate was informing like as an unofficial collaborator, or one in 50. So that's an awful lot of people who are informing on their fellows. And people don't do that um, because they want to. They do that because they're living in a regime in which the consequences of not informing are going to be dire for them and their families. So in that way, it really was a, a sort of pyramid of fear. It tended, because it was so to the surveillance was so total, to the ridiculous in the end. So when the wall fell, um, you could go into the former Stasi headquarters in Leipzig, a building called the Runden Ecke, which some of you may know, um, which had been stormed in the protests towards the end of 1989 by civil rights activists and taken over immediately. So the Stasi had left and it was then immediately turned into a museum. You could see there were you know, pot plants with microphones in them, fake logs with microphones in them, so if you went for a walk in the woods, they could still hear you. There were false navels that could be put in your, um, under your shirt, and then you became instantly more tubby and your button would open and they could take pictures of you with the navel cam. Uh, and there were these jars which were, um, had been used by the Stasi to collect people's bodily odour. And the way that they would do that would be either to call you in for um, an interrogation of some kind and put you on a vinyl chair and afterwards wipe the seat of the chair uh, and pop that. It was just like a, like a jam jar, really, with a metal clasp. Pop that in a jar. Or they would break into your apartment when you weren't home. And, of course, they knew when you weren't at home because they had your apartment under surveillance and steal a piece of your dirty underwear and bottle that. So I saw these jars and they were labelled, um, you know, which would say hair or frau, so-and-so, you know, object, workers' underpants, you know, the time and date of bottling. And then they, the theory was that they could train a German shepherd to um, open the jar, sniff your scent, and then go and see if you had been at a place where you shouldn't have been, somewhere near the border or um, something like that. I never really discovered what the dog was meant to do if it got a match, you know, whether there was like a special paw action or a special bark or something. Um, but I, when I did discuss this with Stasi men, they took it very seriously and were kind of bizarrely uh, proud of this method and said that it worked. 
so it did work. But the other astonishing thing about this collection of smell samples, which contained a very big sample of the working population of Leipzig, was that the contents of the jars had been taken, possibly by the ecstasy themselves, possibly by the civilian, well, sudden, suddenly civilian police in that place, and nobody really knew why. So somewhere a full body sample of the bodily odours of people in the suddenly democratic Germany still existed for uses that might or might not ever become apparent. So as soon as you start looking at a regime that is as... Um, the German word is rather wonderful. It's flächendeckend. It just means uh, covering from corner to corner of this country. The absurdities abound, you know, and that, that was certainly one of them. I mean, when you tell the story, it sounds quite funny, really, but, but the kind of the... the it's, not. It, it's not. It's not funny at all. No. And, and there is this kind of greyness, and it, it comes up again and again in the book that everything is... Every building you go into is furnished with brown linoleum, and the walls are grey. It's like, it's like the whole country is trapped in the 50s. I was, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about the way that every decade eventually gets its kind of fashion resurgence, except the 50s. No, nobody ever wants to make the 50s again, you know? It was so awful. Anyway, and it feels like East Germany was kind of locked into that period. Yes. I mean, aesthetic crimes were probably among the relatively minor ones, but they were <laughs> certainly... Um, yes, you know, that was... There was a certain aesthetic to it. But, you know, the older I get, the more I realise that I had personally also committed aesthetic crimes, and I'm not going to be... Um, Condemning a nation on those grounds when there were really a lot of other grounds to to oh, deal um, with. Oh, yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to be facetious because I mean you've got someone like no. the head of the Stasi whose name was Milka. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Who you know he was um, you know all this blithering about to execute or not to execute for the death penalty or against it. All rot, comrades. Execute and when necessary without a court judgment. Yes. So that was the kind yes. of nature of these people. Yes. And and what they did to your friend, Miriam, just extraordinary, really. Yes, yes. And, you, you know, when you hear, um, you did a very good Milka there, I would say. Um, when you hear those kinds of pronouncements that he made, but then, you know, we hear Trump today or we hear other dictators and people say the most shocking things. And when people in power do it, it's both shocking and frightening. And it's only, obviously, in retrospect that it's funny. And the, um, I'm not, I don't treat it as funny in the book, but Miriam, who's one of the main characters whose story bookends the book, she laughed a lot about it with me. And I think that humour is one of the ways by which we maintain our humanity and our perspective, um, both at the time when ridiculous things are happening and then afterwards in particular when it's easier to possibly see the ironies and absurdities of them. And, I mean, it's how we stay sane. I know when Trump first came to power, my husband and I watched Saturday Night Live religiously and kind of manically in order to see what Alec Baldwin was doing with Trump because it was the only way to get a grip on a man so anti-democratic and so absurd and so shocking. So I think, you know, that is just a parenthetical aside about why this is both not funny 
then and not funny now and also why humour is so absolutely necessary then as, as now yeah. um, to deal with it. So Miriam's story. Um, this is uh, the story, I won't tell the whole story, it's in the book, it's, it's um, quite well known and um, probably some of you will know it. This is um, a woman who I went to see her because I was told, look, you might be interested in her story. Her husband died. He was a young uh, phys ed teacher in the, in the early 80s. He was hauled into Stasi custody because Schmidt, the West German premier, was going to be coming to visit in Saxony. It was a very big deal to have a West German politician come and visit. And so the East German officials were busy locking up anybody who they thought might protest somehow in front of West German or any television cameras. And so Charlie Weber was hauled off the street in Stasi custody, and he died in Stasi custody. Um, a man of about, a very fit young man of 28. And uh, what happened then was that his funeral was effectively orchestrated by the Stasi and Miriam was going to be unable to see his body and so on and so forth. So this event um, is what I thought that I was going to be talking to her about and it turned out that her story had started long before that when as a 16-year-old in 1968 she had decided off her own bat that she was going to get on a train to Berlin and try and climb the Berlin Wall. So her whole life story involved... Um, having really a, a kind of psychology in which even though you're born and bred in this place, you can already see the injustices and absurdities of it. And that to me was, I think, the core of my interest. I'm not sure that I understood that then. But my real interest in this book, as in all that I am really, um, is to look at what it is about human beings, this incredible conscience that we all have, almost all have, and many people, many so-called ordinary people also have the courage to act on it. In circumstances, you couldn't get circumstances, I mean, you can, but there were very extreme circumstances in East Germany. So what makes a person, an ordinary person like Miriam, also Julia, Frau Paul and Klaus Renf, two of the characters of great conscience and courage in Stasiland, what makes them say, no, I will not betray my family, friends, neighbours, colleagues? In Frau Paul's case, I will not betray the West German student I never met who was trying to help me escape. What makes a person do that when they know things are going to go incredibly badly for them? So I was, it was almost like um, being able in this very extreme world under this bell jar of East Germany to look at the human animal in extremis and to look at what is so admirable about, about people. And I think that's what I was really doing. So people do read the book as examining the political and psychological perfidy of a surveillance regime. And that is, of course, what I had to do but I had to do that in order to describe the extraordinary courage of the people who resisted it. And I think that is what interests me still. And I think that's why people are turning to the book now. Um, 
it seems to be bizarrely, sadly, becoming more rather than less current, you know, with the passage of time. I mean, I, I did watch uh, a, a YouTube video of you giving the pen lecture on the subject of courage, <laughs> where you took the, um, you took as the kind of starting point um, uh, Anna Politskovaya? Politkovskaya. Po can you say that again? Well, I am not giving it to you correctly, but um, no. she's a Russian journalist called Anna Politkovskaya. And, and you... Um, interesting enough, you had a kind of um, had a column in a, in, a, in the monthly, and, and that she was writing one on alternate weeks to you. That's right. Did you ever did you know her personally? No, I didn't know her. We were writing for a um, Norwegian uh, publication actually, who asked me would I write a column for them. This is ten years ago, more because she died in two thousand six, I think. Uh, many years ago, would I write a column for them about what's going on in the Eastern Bloc? And I had small babies in Sydney. <laughs> And felt a long way away from the Eastern Bloc and said, no, I can't, um, you know, but I could probably do something for you or maybe I couldn't. So I sort of begged off. Um, but I said to them, why don't you ask Anna Politkovskaya, whose writing I admired enormously. And they did. And she said yes. And as soon as she said yes, I contacted them saying, well, I, I want to write for you now and now that she's writing for you. So we did these alternate columns. And I wrote about, you know, Australia and sharks and really dull things, and she wrote these wonderful columns about what was going on in Russia under Putin before she was assassinated uh, in her apartment um, in, I think it was 2006, something like that. And, and in this lecture, you, you talk very profoundly, in my opinion, about her and what the, the subject of the, as a, the subject of the talk, as I say, is courage, and, but you, you talk about what it is that makes certain people decide that they will go no further. And you talk about that, that um, fascinating American Indian, uh, um, Many Coop. Uh, I thought that was a, an amazing story. Yes, I was just trying to... So Penn asked me to give a lecture. Um, you can, I think, see this online years ago. There were three writers, and then their lectures would be co collected into a book, which they were. Mine was on courage. Christos Chokas did another one, and Melissa Lukashenko did another one for the year that I was doing it. Um, and I just, even though I'd written this book, I, I didn't, I had never really examined uh, in a more theoretical way or a more scientific way or uh, courage, really, per se. So I felt it was an opportunity to, to do that. And it always looked to me like it was a kind of, it's a, it goes against uh, a very my very crude understanding of Darwin, against the idea of survival of the fittest, that people will speak out in this way. So I'm talking about whistleblowers, you know, people um, we're much more familiar now with very famous whistleblowers, of course. That kind of courage where you really do know things are going to go badly for you. A whole organisation, if not a whole country, will, t will turn on you. Why would you do it? Um, and there were some moral philosophers that I looked at and actually a fantastically interesting primatologist called Franz de Waal who looked at the behaviour of higher apes, in particular um, bonobos. And um, they looked at it saying, well, and then this story of um, Many Koo, who was a uh, Native American Indian leader... And these stories, effectively, to sort of summarise it, say if you read Darwin properly, what you find is that 
survival of the fittest is um, a misreading in which it looks as if we are all competing against one another um, for the most, the best, to live the longest and so on. But actually, without a group, none of us can survive. So the survival of a group is paramount, and a group survives on cooperation and collaboration and care. Um, we could tell that to some of the tyrants uh, today. But uh, when things are going badly for that group, say, under an East German regime or in a Native American society when that group is under threat from another group, there will always be individuals who take it upon themselves to ring a bell and warn, or in many coups' case, to, to leave his group and go out and plant what was called a coup stick uh, in the ground, literally, which delineates the territory behind the territory that his group needs in order to be able to survive, and says to an opposing tribe or um, if you go beyond this limit, uh, I will defend it to the death. So there are people who are prepared to defend what they see as um, the circumstances which enable the survival of a group, even if it involves their own sacrifice. And that rang very true to me then in the lives of the people that I had written about in Stasiland, who would never themselves have thought about things in such... Um, in such terms, they just said things like, I will not be able to look at myself in the mirror if I betray so-and-so. You know, If I am called into Stasi interrogation and asked to betray this young West German student who was trying to help me escape through a tunnel to see my very ill baby, this is Frau Paul's story, who has ended up on the other side of the wall in a West German hospital, I will never be able to look at myself in the mirror again. So she knew that that might mean that she would also never get to her son again. So much later, she has this very... She lives with this decision, and this decision was, as she would say to me, every time through tears, I decided in favour of my conscience, but against my son. Uh, so th that sort of decision struck me as very extreme instance of what a human being will do in order not to be morally bent out of shape so they don't recognise themselves. And, you know, there are instances of this all the time. You don't have to go very far to, to, to look for it. In all our lives, I think, there are always people who are just prepared to be um, upstanding, you know, and I think that's worth, worth celebrating, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... When we, and I would say also they are not the people that you necessarily think. They're not the people who are necessarily, um, you know, wearing state honours or wearing a uniform. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they are. I mean, the stories in Stasiland that were the most attractive ones to me are two young women, um, an alcoholic rock star, and an apparently, to all intents and purposes, ordinary, she would have called herself, housewife in Frau Paul. So I was interested in how this conscience and courage, which is very extreme and extraordinary, looks when it comes in an apparently ordinary package. Yeah. yeah. And, and we just, you also took into the novel 
as you as you hinted before, into all that I am. It, it's kind of the same. You're looking at that same structure, except in this case, we're talking about 1933 in Germany when the Nazis are coming to power, and so the, the, there's kind of two parts. Well, there's actually several parts to the book, but there's kind of this part that's happening in 1933, and then there's also this part that's happening uh, in London where the exiles have gone, and. To me, one of the revelations of the book, I suppose, was that we have a tendency to see uh, nationalities when they're in exile as somehow homogenous, that everybody from that, but if they're Syrian, if they're Afghanistan, or what if they, if they, once they've kind of come to Australia to live, then they're going to be all of the same mind. And the, the wonderful thing that you do and, and all that I am is that you kind of show that they're just as... Um, they're subject to all the same things that all the rest of us are, all the same rivalries and jealousies and loves and, and desires that everyone is. And, and out of that, in the situation in London, these exiles from Germany are not allowed to be political because the British government doesn't want, uh, the, doesn't want to offend Germany at this point because it's only 15 years after the end of the First World War and nobody wants to go to war again. And these people are, are just... They're, they're, they're stirrers. They're, they're dangerous people. We don't want them in our country. So they, if they if they do speak up, they get exported back to they get deported back to Germany. I, I guess what I'm I, I'm kind of leading to here is just this um, in this group, there is a major kind of betrayal that happens that is the kind of centre of the story. How how did you get? I mean, well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase that question. It turns out when I, because I read this novel once and didn't kind of, I probably didn't read the notes on the end or something, and then I read it later and realised that it actually is a true story. It's based around actual events that happened. You knew this woman called Ruth Blatt, who is kind of the model for one of the major characters in all that I am. How, how did you get to come to know her? Yeah, so um, I knew Ruth Blatt from when I was seventeen. She, um, I studied German and French at school and had a fantastic German and French teacher. And when I left, I wanted to apply for scholarships, one of which I eventually got, which resulted in Stasiland, uh, many years later. Um, but when I was applying for those, I just left school, and I asked my German teacher, who was a family friend, if she would be able to check my German. You had to write in German for this application. And she very wisely had totally had enough of me, I think, and begged off and said, I'm busy, um, but why don't you talk to Ruth? And Ruth was, had been her German teacher in the 50s in, uh, in Melbourne, where I grew up. And Ruth was a... She was born in 1906, so she was exactly 60 years older than me. And I now discover, much to my husband's amusement, that the, every 60 years... He, he's been... did quite a lot of work in China at one point. And every 60 years, it's a... Um, fire horse year and 1906 was one and 1966 was another and if you're a woman uh, and you're born in those years you are impossible and unmarriageable <laughs> which he reminds me of sometimes um, so anyway Ruth and I really liked each other from the get-go and she had been so she's in her 70s when I met her and, I, and she died in 2001 just as I was starting working on this book. Um, so she lived a very long life. Her story was, in brief, that she had joined um, 
the social, she'd done a PhD in literature in Germany. She came from a very well-off, assimilated, um, cultured Jewish family in Silesia. She did a PhD and joined the Socialist Workers' Party, which was a small left-wing party um, that, unlike the Social Democrats, had voted against the First World War. So they were pacifist Social Democrats, but not as far left as the Communists. Um, but when Hitler came to power, she had to go into exile in London. And very, this is to do nothing to ruin the book for people who haven't, haven't looked at it. Um, in 1935, after two years in London, she tried to smuggle 150 anti-Hitler leaflets in her trousers back into Germany to alert people as to what was going on in Germany because Hitler, of course, had immediately <coughs> clamped down on the press. And she was betrayed at the border and arrested as she came in on the train station into Germany. Um, because it was so early on, it was 35, she was given a trial. So you've got this left-wing German-Jewish activist given a trial. Um, and her father, who was a First World War veteran, had hired the best Nazi lawyer money could buy. And there were 12 judges, all in Nazi uniform, at her trial. They, it was for high treason. Um, so it was kind of like a Chelsea Manning kind of event. Uh, and they wanted to put her away for 12 years, in which case she would really never have gotten out of Germany alive. But she got five years in the end and was released just before the war broke out in 1939, after having three years of that in solitary in Germany. Um, and she was... Because the Nazis obeyed the letter of the law and she'd had a trial, she had to be physically released... She couldn't be just schlepped off to a concentration camp straight away in 39. So they took away her passport and all her papers and her PhD and said, you are released. Um, you have 24 hours to get out of the country. If we find you within 24 hours, we'll put you in a concentration camp. So it's a little bit like, you know, this nasty game of setting off grouse before hunters or something. But she did manage to get out, and she got the last boat out of Genoa before Italy joined the war on the side of the fascists, made it to China and spent seven years in Shanghai, which was the only place that was accepting stateless, paperless refugees that she could get to. Uh, and then she got to Melbourne in 47. Um, so this story, in my mind, this, my, what interested me was what was happening in London in those years, 33 to 35. And I knew nothing about I thought I knew all her stories. And then as she was dying, I started... Um, she started getting very vague on things. And I started, paradoxically at that time, getting less and less vague and less like listening to her stories. You can actually listen to her voice. There's a, um, a program I made for Radio National many years before in the, in the 90s I recorded and then the program was made in the early 2000s. I think you can probably still get it on the ABC. You can listen to her telling her own story. But the, the story of what had happened in London was really interesting to me because it was about people who were politically active very, very early on in Hitler's regime and kicked out of that regime uh, and found apparent safety in London, only not, as it turns out. Um, and when you set out to do this, were you... I mean, uh, you'd, you'd written a very successful non-fiction book. Were you... When you started writing this one, was it... As another non-fiction book, did you? Was it going to be a similar kind of work to Stasi Land, where you would have your own journey through 
the, through the discovery, the research around these stories, or, or was it always planned as a novel? When I started writing Stasiland, I um, started writing it as a novel because I was in my 20s and I wanted to write a novel. And I realised what I was doing was absolutely execrable, really, really awful. I was writing it in my dingy flat in, in uh, Berlin. And it was awful in its own right, uh, on its own <laughs> lack of merits. But it was also so awful, I came to realise, because um, I was taking stories from people, most notably Miriam, who were still walking around. Um, and they were walking around, in Miriam's case, in Leipzig, in other people's cases, in Berlin or other cities, in a place where you know, the victims or heroes and the perpetrators were still there, all living cheek by jowl in these cities. And you might be in the supermarket buying your, you know, potato salad at the delicatessen, and the hand that reaches over your shoulder to get the number might be when you turn around the hand of your former interrogator or your former neighbour or current neighbour who you realised from looking in the files was informing on you and so on. So it... And the other thing was that those stories of the people who had been informed on and the people who had resisted were really not being told. There was this atmosphere of um, shame and distrust and fear of revenge and many other complicated things that was going on. So I just thought, these stories are really not appropriate for someone to come along and make fiction out of. Um, even very, very bad fiction. These stories need to be told um, in the place where um, the stories of resistance, really, and of capitulation need to be told as true stories. The other thing about it was to write a, any kind of decent novel, the first task is really to create a believable world. You're asking people to pay money and to sit down for numbers of hours uh, and believe what you tell them about people is true. And to do that, in my case, I mean, I'm not writing... Maybe I am writing dystopian fiction. But I was right. I wanted the world to be a believable one that I'm inviting a reader to share. And the world of East Germany, for reasons that we've discussed with the smell samples and the invasion of privacy and the fake navels and the incredible banality and administrative efficiency and evil of the regime on the one side and the utterly unbelievable and yet real and commonplaces to exaggerate it but common enough that I could find it without trouble courage of the people who resisted all of that was real so it would not be real to put any of that in a novel I could not make a real place that in any way did justice to the bizarreness of the place I wanted to describe. So it had to be non-fiction. And because the stories were separate stories, I had to put myself a version of in in order to describe contemporary Berlin as it was knitting itself back together, the supermarkets and swimming pools where these people were rubbing up against each other and me, cheek by jowl. So that... It was a kind of moral and aesthetic mm. question, both, why that had to be non-fiction. In All That I Am, I finally got 
to write a novel that I wanted to write. And it is also, in its own way, doing justice to these real stories of people who were very prescient early bell ringers about the Nazi regime. And that was exciting to me to do. But everybody was dead. And the story revolves around two women who were found dead in the locked room of a top-floor flat in Bloomsbury, two um, of the German activist women, a young woman and an older politician, and they're found dead in this room. The, the bedroom is locked and the door to the flat is locked and there's no sign of forced entry. These women were friends of my friend Ruth's uh, and a week later there was a coronial inquest at which no evidence of political activity was allowed to be admitted in an investigation of the deaths of these German political activists who were in exile because of their political activity. So that struck me as an incredible conundrum, but in the same way as it was going to be impossible to really know what happened in that room, it had to be an act of kind of, in my mind, I had to make believable what happened in that room, but it was going to have to be fiction, based on looking at every tiniest scrap of real evidence I could find about real people to make the story of what happened there believable. So it had to be, it had to be a novel. Um, but, you know, I put notes in the back of it because I couldn't... I guess I wanted people to read this as a novel and then to see that Dora Fabian really lived and Ruth Blatt really lived and Hans Wiesemann really lived and obviously Hitler really lived. And the things that they really said are what my characters really say. So I've kind of dug up um, all my metaphors when my, when my son was in his dinosaur phase, all my metaphors became about digging things up because that was what he was doing. But it was like sort of finding these fragments of real fossil, you know, feather and bone in the ground and trying to make this beast live out of them and trying to make these people resurrect them, I guess. And that's a task that only, only fiction could do. And, and you, you, you do it wonderfully. It didn't. It's no, it no wonder that it won all those awards. Look, I'm just looking at the clock here and I've been hogging you all to myself. I think we better open this up to the floor up to questions. Um, so if that's okay with you. Um, we are actually recording these events, so if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone to come to you. And, That's uh, while we wait. I have, huh? I, can I say something while we wait? Yes. Yes. So Put up a hand if you, if you want uh, to ask a question. I'm, um, I'm just going to tell a little story, um, which is just connected with updating Stasiland now for now, for our new age of surveillance and tyrants. <laughs> Um, and that is that when I went to... The book was received in Germany in a kind of muted way because people really didn't want to look at this second um, dictatorship uh, on, on German soil in the 20th century. It was just really a very sensitive issue, and it was almost impossible... I thought I was discovering these fantastic heroes, like... 
the Geschwister Scholl, Hans and Sophie Scholl, who had resisted the Nazis and who were much celebrated. Um, they, were, uh, they were killed by Hitler and are much celebrated now as heroes of the resistance against him. And I thought in Stasiland I'd found other heroes and proof that human conscience survived everything that could be thrown at it. But the, re the reception was as split as the country was. So former East German uh, journalists, so-called, who were really spokespeople for the regime, of course they hated the book, and then the more liberal broadsheets really liked it. But I only really understood what was going on when I went to the launch of the book, which was in 2004, in the former Stasi headquarters in Leipzig, um, which was a room kind of double triple, probably double the size of this. It was literally the secret policeman's ballroom uh, in, in Leipzig. And it was full of people like this. But when I got up to speak, I was introduced by my German pub West German publisher who stood at a lectern and I could see that her knees were shaking underneath the lectern. And I thought, what is going on here? You know, she must have introduced many, many books before. She was obviously nervous facing this East German audience. She wrapped up her speech by saying, well, look, after all, what we have in common, West Germans and East Germans, is betrayal. And I just thought, wow, that's a really resounding, uplifting note for me <laughs> to come, uh, come in on. Um, and I came in and I was kind of nervous. I was, I was pregnant with, um, with my second child and... I sort of had a few butterflies, but I was also a little bit vague. And I got up on stage and I looked down and the first two rows of chairs where you people are, you kind-faced people are tonight, were full of ex-Stasi or ex-party people looking absolute daggers at me uh, and kind of huffing and puffing. And when I started speaking, they reached, not all at once, but it's better for my story if it's all at once, <laughs> into their bomber jackets and pulled out notepads. And then they started scratching, <laughs> scratching these notes as I was starting to read, you know, in, in German. And that's when I just got kind of a bit stillier and I thought, you know what, frightening people might have its pleasures or have had for you, but I don't want to give you any more of those. And what, no, what are you going to do with notes on me? You know, you're the day for you to misuse notes and stolen biographies of people is over and I've got my own notes and here they are and you're going to have to listen. I said none of that, of course. <laughs> uh, and I just read. But at the end, there were, it was opened up for questions just like we're doing now. Um, nobody said a thing. And the ex-Stasi kind of huffed and puffed themselves up out and walked out and then, and this happened in every, I was on a 10-city tour of Germany, and every city in the former East where I was, this happened. There'd be always somebody who looked a bit ancien regime-ish. Um, and it wasn't until that person left that somebody would stand up. And that night in Leipzig, it was a woman who stood up and said, you know, why does it take an Australian to come and tell us our own stories? Um, and I thought, well, you know, I think, your answer just left the room. <laughs> Which, of course, I didn't say either. Um, but that's what happens when you launch a book into a society that is so riven into us and them. Uh, and, you know, the regime is over from one day to the next on the 9th of November. 
30 years this year, but it's as if really a bell jar has been taken off and everyone is still there, the, the interrogators and their persecutors. So, uh, yes, so I just say that, that that's what's happening now. And then uh, you have to read the afterword, uh, which will be published sometime later this year to see what happened after that. But, sorry, are there questions? I don't know. <laughs> so there was a hand somewhere just there, but yes, there. magical millennia, Anna, despite the rain. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about your name. Funda is, sounds rather German. And also, did you write Stasi Land before you married Craig? <laughs> I don't think I've ever been asked that second question. <laughs> um, so Funda is a Danish name. And um, my... There was a Danish ancestor who jumped ship in the 1860s in Adelaide uh, and then promptly married into Irish and Scots generation after generation after generation. So, um, but I recently discovered um, that there were, there were two German families who came out um, after the failed revolution in Thuringia so the failed 1848 revolution in Germany, there were two boats of German um, kind of urban dwellers who were fleeing that failed revolution in, Ger in Germany for democracy. And two families, the Holmes and the Menses, were some of my forebears who did end up in, in, uh, in Adelaide. So oh. after many, many years of saying I don't have any German ancestry, I actually found out that I do, which I quite do. And not only that kind of... Um, democratic revolutionaries of some sort or another. Uh, now, I married Craig in 98, so I had already started work on the book, but it hadn't come out. Mm. The book survived the marriage, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> the marriage survived the book, maybe. Ah. Ah. Hello, my name is Ken Taro. Thank you for your speech today. Um, I myself lived in East Berlin uh, from 86 to 89. Uh, my father was a Japanese diplomat and uh, he was sent to the East German um, embassy of Japan. Um, naturally, we were enemy countries, so I remember as a child even that my, our phone was tapped and all sorts of strange things happened. But anyway, it really uh, brought me back to that time and. Um, I still remember the wall being in front. Of, we lived on Leipziger Straße, and then the near Checkpoint Charlie, and yeah. the wall was right in front of our house. We lived in the 14th floor, so we overlooked the wall, and everything over there was West Berlin, and at the bottom is East Berlin, Leipziger Straße. And anyway, <laughs> good memories. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, it was a really great. Well, you know, not great, but like a very intense time, and really, we have really fond memories. Um, anyway, um, I'm uh, also recently writing fiction and uh, I'm writing lots about uh, my country, Japan, and the wartime of Japan as well. And uh, uh, I wanted to ask you if you can share a little bit of your secrets in, in terms of storytelling um, and also how do you um, confront or face uh, writers' blocks. Thanks very much. <laughs> Um, I don't really feel like an expert, you know, I just, um, but I think the closer you look at something, 
if you're trying to really figure it out and really tell the truth about something, the story, will you will find the story of that thing. So I would just say, look very closely and tell the truth, and that will be the story. Because the way that we make sense of things, you know, the, the truths that we tell ourselves, the way we make sense of the world is a truth-making and sense-making, of course there are many truths, but truth-making and sense-making exercise, and I think that's intimately linked to storytelling. So I... Um, and that is also connected with writer's block. So I feel sometimes writer's block comes from thinking that the story is inside you, um, and I think it's probably not. I think it's probably outside you. So whether that's in characters that you've created, and then they are going to be people who have to make sense and have their own truths in themselves. So you, you're looking outside yourself all the time. I think writer's black block is a kind of implosion, and to avoid that, you, well, just for me anyway, it works to look out. Yes, there's a, there's a, oh, sorry, we've got this, you, you can be next. Hello, my name is Katarina. I actually grew up in East Germany. So, uh, it's been very interesting to hear you talk and share a bit more about the book. I've read it ages ago. I've um, got lots of sticky notes in mine, got lots of things underlined, lots of things um, certainly rang true. Um, in fact, my uh, grandfather suffered from schizophrenia in, the, in his later years because he was in the party and a functionary in the party, and that really was his downfall psychologically. Um, so, my question. Um, is more about the Stasi men that you did interview because um, I found that really interesting, obviously. And I was just wondering when you met them, how you um, how you would take notes? Did you have a recording device that you told them about? Didn't tell them about? Did you have a notepad in hand? How did you get all that information? Because you've got you know pretty much um, their spoken word in the book and got lots of information from there, so did you, or did you just have an amazing memory and you just walked away and you just had the whole conversation in your head? How extraordinary. I come to Mulaney. <laughs> Where have you been all my career? I come to Mulaney and there's somebody with a childhood in the embassy on Leipziger Straße and you with your grandfather as a party man. Um, so first to the grandfather, I think. Thank you for sharing that with us today. My interest in the ex-Stasi was really also quite, I felt, a personal one. You know, when I was briefly quite a bad lawyer, when I was doing my articles, I worked for a firm, a big firm, um, which was a very prestigious firm in Melbourne just to, to get qualified. And I found myself working on cases uh, that were really um, disturbing. Uh, we worked for a company that manufactured asbestos and of course we were uh, defending that company against actions by people who were dying from mesothelioma. And my job as an article clerk was 
uh, realised, to extend the actions to delay, to use every legal trick to delay these actions so that these, they were mostly men, but also women who'd washed the clothes with the fibres on and so on, so that they would die. It took, takes about nine months to die, usually, from mesothelioma. It's very, very nasty. So that they would die. And then there was, at that time, under Victorian law, no compensation payable to the families. So I felt that I could see what it was like for me and my fellow article clerks to be involved in a closed universe of that firm and more broadly of the law in which you could make a career that would protect you from things that life might throw at you at considerable cost to yourself. And that there were ways of rationalising that in my mind. You know, everybody deserves a defence and so on and so forth. So I was very... And, you know, and then I, I couldn't do it. I had, I had to leave. I, so I'm, I'm interested from a kind of... From feeling there, but for the grace of God go I, really. And if you're operating in a closed system like in East Germany and you want to keep your family safe and you want to have a career, I could completely understand why people would join and not resist, you know. I didn't meet anyone like your grandfather except for one man who was Herr Bornzak, who was very sophisticated and he was high up in the diplomatic service, involved in spreading disinformation, for instance, about the Nazi past of West German politicians and so on. Disinformation in West Germany in order to manipulate West German politics. He was very sophisticated and he was the only one of the people that I talked to who had any capacity to regret anything. And he said, um, you know, I spent 26 years telling lies as a career you know, I don't think I had the presence of mind to say to him, I think that's what a lot of diplomats have to do. Uh, but I think that that issue of how much you can... Rec the psychological toll it takes on you for recognising what you were doing and that price is very severe. And, I'm, you know, that must have been devastating for your, for your grandfather. On the issue of how I did it, um, I would, of course, record and... and this takes me back, makes me feel prehistoric. It was a, uh, a tape recorder of actual analogue tapes um, that I would place on the table with every single discussion. So all of the talks were taking place in German. I then also had... I wouldn't do any interviews if I couldn't tape them. Um, they were no use to me because... Uh, of course, I talked to lots of people as background, but in order to use it, I had to be able to quote people properly... And to do that, I had to have the tape recording. So there was a lot of transcription that happened. But I would also always have a notebook. I had um, very... I loved them. I've got a whole stack of them that have a sort of basis for Stasiland on, on a shelf. I would always have a notebook as well. And that I would recommend to anybody, partly because I could take notes to myself while someone was talking to me um, about what the room was like, about the five different colours brown linoleum or about the man chewing on his chicken bone or about, you know, whatever it was, um, in German or in English or however it went. And that was important for the atmosphere and it was important also perhaps if I, a question occurred to me that I wanted to come back to, I would write that down. Also because I was incredibly insecure that the tape might not work or something, so I was taking notes. But I realised much later that another very important thing about having a notebook 
is that it allows the person you're talking to, um, it, it allows you to cease eye contact with them because you're busy writing things down. And that gives them a kind of freedom, not exactly from scrutiny, but just from your gaze, if you like. And other things occur to them in that space, I think. I think that's what happened. So I have uh, not a good memory and worse now than it was then, and everything is quoted um, as it was said to me. Obviously translated, but as it was said to me. Now look, I think we've got time for just one more question. There was a, a, a question just here somewhere, so can we have that one there? And then I think they would, because it is 8 o'clock now. Everyone's had enough. Hi, it's just a quick one. The remark you attribute to... Can, can you hold it close oh. up here? The remark you attribute to Odin, or Auden, um, is that an actual quote? Which one is this? Um, all that I am against all I'm not. Yes. 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 So that's actually... Um, I'll be very brief about this. There's a scene um, in All That I Am where Ernst Toller, who is a very famous playwright in exile from Hitler narrating the book um, in New York. I actually just was in New York reading to an audience of Toller scholars, which was quite amazing. There were people who study his work, um, and they asked me to be their kind of pre-dinner entertainment with my fictional Toller. Um, he was friends with Auden, and Auden, when they, were when they were in London, when Toller was in exile, Auden translated Ernst Toller's plays and wrote fantastic lyrics for the librettos, for the songs in them as one might imagine. Um, the scene where Auden is having lunch and spilling his soup down his tie uh, in the hotel with Toller is imagined. But Auden did say, uh, all that I am looks back, don't let it bother you that, you know, all that I am looks back at all that you are not. Or he said it better, that he did say, and he also said, of course, as everyone knows, poetry makes nothing happen. Um, so, yeah, those things he did say. To look... I really think we have, we have to wrap it up. I, I would just like to say thank you so much for coming to Mulaney and, and, and talking to us. Please put your hands together for, for Anna Finger.